Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today on the show, protecting your toaster's money. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Seth Nelson, and I'm here as always with my good friend, Pete Wright. If you're newly divorced, this episode is going to hit home because today we're dealing with one of the central questions that forms the overall arc of your divorce story. How do you handle the money? This week on the show, we have a guest seasoned in helping the quote, suddenly single, end quote, through the uncertainty, a financial educator for his clients and how to avoid the financial vultures that circle the divorce process. Simon Brady, welcome to the toaster. Thank you for having me, guys. Okay, right off the bat, yeah, financial vultures, he's not referring to the divorce attorneys, right, Simon? I want to just get this out of the way. Are there, I just want to know if there are divorce vultures too, divorce vultures and financial vultures. I can only speak to the financial side of things. I'll be very diplomatic about that. Oh, that <laughs> sounded generous. like a yeah. yes there Yeah, it are. did sound like a yes to me too, Your <laughs> Honor. I, in his I, British... All the divorce attorneys I've met have been very, very nice people. Yes, in his British accent with a stiff upper <laughs> lip. Look at this. <laughs> so diplomatic. Look, Simon, I'm really glad you're here today because we've talked about, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about money issues before, uh, but, but you bring a vast experience to uh, uh, in just markets and the broader economy, and somehow you landed on this, helping people uh, to relate to their financial situation at a very individual level. And I'm, I'm curious, before we start, how did you get here from there? Well, the there you're referring to um, was a 20, yes, goodness, 25-year career, essentially on Wall Street. So if you've seen the Wolf of Wall Street movie, it sort of was me. Uh, I'm a little, uh, little ashamed to say. Um, although we were dealing with uh, institutions rather than individuals. I'll, I'll just say that in my defense. I, I have seen much... Wolf of Wall Street, and now all I can think about is which part, Simon? Which part was like kind of like you? We'll let that go. Uh, I just want you to know it's in here right now. There's 70%. I'll let you figure out which, uh, <laughs> what the 30% is. See, um, you can see already he's a financial guy. Well, it's 70%. Yes, 70%. Let's see about the 30 <laughs> That's right. We're going to have this all day long. Um, so it was very much not dealing with individuals. It was dealing with traders at banks. It was very dissociated from uh, personal finance. Um, but it did give me a peek or a very long peek behind the curtain of how the financial markets work, what drives them. Um, I worked in derivatives as well, which is a little more complex area. So it was very good from that perspective. But 2008 came and um, destroyed everybody's dreams down there. Uh, the business model was kind of broken. I was a little burned out anyway. So I got certified as a CFP, a certified financial planner, originally with the idea of going to work for a firm. Uh, and I did that for a year at the UN, uh, where I worked as a financial advisor at the UN. As people do. As you do, yeah. Well, yeah. What the UN set up for. <laughs> um, it was uh, the staff of the UN. Uh, were the main uh, were the main clients, but then in 2016, I pretty much thought I would uh, set up my own firm, make my own rules, um, and most importantly, determine my own target client audience. 
at the UN and actually prior to the UN, I, I developed a bit of a specialty in dealing with foreign nationals and the issues that they have living in America financially. Financially, Large sums of cash in suitcases, you know, <laughs> right, stuff you like that, with, Pete. What do you do with those brown envelopes afterwards? And a couple of the first clients I had, uh, who are actually not foreign nationals at all, um, were in a relatively recent post-divorce situation. So I got to see firsthand what was top of their mind. Um, and those clients were very different than the regular clients. They were focused on the financial fallout from what in one case, I think was, you know, literally a matter of weeks since the divorce decree had been issued. Let's, let's talk about that for a minute, because yeah. now you're in there and you're helping these yeah. people, right? So I mean, and, you know, people say, Seth, what's the hardest part of your job? Is it the emotion? Is it this? It's that. There isn't one that I think is hardest. I think it's all hard and depends on the day and the client. But my best day in court, I'm going to get you half your stuff, right? So they just feel like, and, and people I think have this psychological mindset, I have an IRA, it's my IRA. Now they're married, they're growing it. It's intended for the family to live off of and your spouse to live off of. But right when you get divorced, boy, it's my IRA. What do you mean I have to give half of it away? Okay. Mm-hmm. And you explain the law to them and it's like they're shell-shocked because it's a total mind shift, right? Yep. Um, and, and that's kind of what you're dealing with with someone that either, I'm assuming, just lost half their net worth in their mind or the person that never handled the finances and just got X number of dollars and they don't know what to do with it. Is that kind of the two broad categories we're dealing with here? Yes, and I actively seek out the second of those two. The person who did not necessarily handle finances during the relationship, uh, the person who, uh, you know, in some cases it's stay-at-home moms, but not always, but the one who is completely and utterly overwhelmed not so much by the divorce process, because I don't get involved until the decree is issued. The people who get involved prior to that are CDFAs, Certified Divorce Financial Analysts. That's a different skill. I don't do that. But coming out of the divorce, yeah, as you say, maybe there's maybe there's half a million dollars sitting in the bank account that this person uh, had not, has no idea what to do with. Uh, they've got, and this is what I find so compelling about this situation is that everything is in motion. Absolutely everything. Estate planning is in motion. You've got to redo that will. Right. But before you get that to the will, and we've talked about this before, Pete, you just went through a divorce. You've just been dealing with lawyers all this time. And then the wise thing to do is to redo your estate plan, your will, your power of attorney, your healthcare surrogate, your living will, they call it, right? I call Mm -hmm. it the trip over the plug document, not pull the plug, you know, like trip over the cord because my family's very clumsy and we don't want to have to pull the plug, you know, (laughs) but to do that, you have to like, go talk to a lawyer, just what they want to do. Yeah. Right. right? Or they're afraid, like now they have this money and some people are embarrassed. They don't know anything about the financial markets or what to do. And so they have to ask for help and asking for help is hard. And that's who Simon's dealing with, Pete, yeah. right? Well, and that's kind of what I'm wondering. Like, if you get into that emotional state, you're finally done with the lawyers. At what point do you say, I just want to do it myself for a little while? Like, I'm tired of having people poke around, and yet you still have to learn how to pick up the pieces. I imagine there are just a lot of pieces. 
there needs to be, um, you need to have a good bedside manner here. You can't impose yourself as, as you, exactly what you just said. They're coming out of what might have been an absolute nightmare. They're probably emotionally raw. The last thing they want is someone like me coming and, and, and acting in a very bossy fashion. This needs to be done in the next three weeks. So I am very, very conscious of the stuff that you guys have said. And I think I will put together an agenda in my own mind. But as far as the client's concerned, we're just moving along at the pace that they that they are comfortable with. I mean, there are some things that need to be done relatively quickly. There's usually a real estate event following a, a divorce. There's a house being sold, there's apartments being bought. One thing I do find is people are very, very, I don't use the word desperate, but very keen. If they've come from an owned property that they owned with their spouse, the idea of going and renting is abhorrent to so it's many of them. nauseating. But that's exactly yeah. what they should do. Wait, 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 wait. You guys both, you both said that at the same time, and I'm very curious why. That's not my instinct would have said something different. Because if you come out of a divorce and you sell the family home, probably, and Seth will know all this, there's going to be conditions in the, uh, and there's children involved, there's going to be conditions in the decree that say, uh, you know, the children can't be moved for, you know, out of state for long periods of time, certainly not out of the country. Um, so your your initial place that you live is probably going to be somewhere nearby. But your job situation may change. And locking yourself in or completely boxing yourself in by buying immediately doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I, if In a clean slate situation, I would say to somebody, look, rent for a year. You know, you're going to be living in a different place. You're not living in a four-bedroom house anymore. You're probably going to be living in a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, see how you like that. Don't commit. A one-year lease is, is a very, very low commitment. A 30-year mortgage for half a million dollars is not. Well, and is that why, like, what they're looking at is trying to sort of protect themselves from the from the crazy change of and feeling like a transient if you're in a rental place? You just want stability? or That's absolutely some of it, Pete. Other people feel like, Really? I'm going to an apartment? Yeah. Right? And so then I'll tell them, rent a house. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that you have to be in an apartment with 20-year-olds. Yeah, we're talking right? about a financial obligation, not necessarily a living situation. Exactly. So, and they're trying to, you know, have something comparable to what they had during their sure. marriage, especially for the children. They want to each have their own bedroom if there's two kids. And what about this? And so there's all this emotional stuff of feeling grounded, safe, and secure with home ownership. The flip side of that is some people are like, I'm keeping the marital home. So they're not worried about moving, but they're also worried about how am I going to do the maintenance? How am I going to do this? And I'm like, well, I said, are you good with tools? They're like, no. And I said, are you good with any tool? They say, no. And I said, yes, you are. It's called a phone. There's maintenance guys. There's maintenance companies. And all that shit that your husband, just being, you know, stereotypical here, sorry, that your husband hasn't gotten done, I bet you you can get it done in two hours with the right maintenance company. And then it it, it is like liberating. Like, oh, I can handle this. So it's just emotional and stuff. But from a financial perspective, if you're moving out of the house or it's being sold in Simon's example, 
it's not a bad idea to take a breather and just think about it for a year. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. I mean, I can I just trying to put myself in that position. I'm like anything to not tie my tie me down to something. Like I feel like I'd want to be more nimble. I'd want to find a way to to be agile. It's just the opposite it's, because yeah. your life has been on this boat that has been in this out at sea yeah. through the storm, and you don't want to be nimble and agile. You want to be in the harbor, okay. secure and safe. So. Okay. All right. Well, that leads to to sort of this next angle, which is like, what? Let's let's take your perspective, Simon. How do you? Uh, what does it take to rebuild? What does it take to pick up those pieces? And what are the things that you should be looking out for? Beth alluded to it. There. To to an extent, it's a mindset. Trying to replicate or mimic the life you had before, except minus one person, can be a mistake. What I find is that people tend to and particularly people who have been on the receiving end of financial payouts in the uh, in the settlement tend to want to spend like crazy. Oh, sure. Because partly it's retail therapy, but partly it's, you know, we've always had like $100,000 maybe in liquid assets. Suddenly I've got $500,000. So that's like $400,000 of free money. So let me go spend it. Now, the fact is that if it's $500,000, that's because a court and accountants and CDFAs have determined that that's the amount of money that you need to get through the rest of your life with this uh, in this situation, not to get through the next four weeks. Um, and I do find, I, I don't know, Steph, Seth, you submit. Wait a minute. So we can't go by the Rolls Royce that the Queen used to use? <laughs> four weeks. Come on, oh, what a, what a Simon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I got 500 big ones sitting in the bank, burning a hole through my pocket, buddy. But, but what if I use it to drive Uber? Does that actually, is there a tax advantage? <laughs> <laughs> so we move straight on to the financial vultures then. Yeah, that was um, the next question. Look at you. <laughs> um, so that is that is definitely one thing. Um, but it it is particularly, as I said, with the, what I would call the... Um, financial junior partner in the relationship in terms of uh, experience with dealing with money. Suddenly you have someone who maybe is 40 years old and, you know, doesn't know how to pay the gas bill. So um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. But let's be clear. All of this hard work is learnable and it's really not that co complex. It's not that difficult to get your banking accounts set up online and pay your bills online. Okay. You can get text notifications. You can do a lot of things to make your life easier and setting up apart a little bit of time to get it set up saves you immense amount of time in the future. So these are all learned skills and money, which, you know, Simon's talking about like, oh, you got 500 grand, let's not blow it. It's not as complicated as people make it. People will say, I don't know anything about money. I don't know anything about taxes. With some basic information, that's what you need to get yourself going in the ball rolling. And when you're working with someone like Simon who can explain it to you in ways that is simple, you're eating an elephant one bite at a time, that's really key. And it will bring you comfort. It will bring you comfort to know that you've socked that money away for your retirement and you're going to live within your means now and potentially even save some money.
Well, I think that's that is a a really great point. I think from the emotional part of it, like being able to to get comfort in that stability and not seek comfort in spending this this $400,000 in 4 weeks, right? Like that there is a different kind of long-term sustainable comfort that comes from making wise financial decisions, but conditioning yourself to to be that person, I imagine is is a real challenge when you're coming out of the emotional lows of the divorce. And that's very much the role that I see for myself. I don't see myself being deeply involved in this person's life for three or four years. My job is to take a look at take a look at the take a snapshot of the situation as it is now. Do exactly what Seth just mentioned, which is get this person familiar with all the things that he was talking about. Um, it is so much easier for this generation of people now to organize their finances in a highly automated fashion. I do that with all clients, not just suddenly single clients. And the, the, the point really is to put everything into place, get that will redone, look at the life insurance, uh, at least have a conversation about real estate and get them straight on that. And then almost to step back and kind of let them back into the wild, as it were, when, uh, when all this work is done. But to the person coming out of divorce, and I've had, I've been told this by the people themselves, that list of tasks that, uh, that Seth just laid out, which to us doesn't sound particularly intimidating, is very intimidating to certain people as they come out. And my job is to ease them into that. That's what I was saying earlier that I don't, I don't go piling in with a, with a, with a to-do list day one, but with a view very much to stepping away when the time is right and just being someone they can check in with whenever they feel like it. So let's talk then about the financial vultures. Uh, you make mention to the financial vultures, uh, and I am gathering that that is a representation of some of the pitfalls, uh, the ways your others can take advantage of your money. What, how do you define a financial vulture, and what do you do to help? You, if you're interacting with a financial advisor or interviewing a financial advisor or considering a financial advisor, the most important thing to understand about that advisor is how they are compensated. Because that will tell you exactly what the relationship will uh, will look like and feel like. So uh, I am essentially, I'm paid by the hour. I'm probably paid very similarly to a, to a lawyer. Um, I, have an, I create an agenda with people. We go through the agenda. Every month I send a bill, says I worked six billable hours for you this month. My hourly rate is this. Please pay me that. Um, so clients are paying me for my time. I'm not receiving any money from any other source, such as a, an, insur an insurance company to sell policies or an investment company to promote a particular type of investment, a particular fund or anything else. So I am what's called a fee-only advisor. 100% of my compensation comes from the client. And that's either in terms of invoiced fees for time or for asset management fees if they choose for me to directly manage the assets. When Simon's compensated that way, he has no financial benefit to put you in one life insurance policy versus another. Or any. Or any, for that matter. Right. Very good point. So he's getting paid by the hour. You're asking his advice and counsel. He says, here are your options. No life insurance. Term life insurance, which is for a set period of time. You pay your premiums. If you die in that time, whoever your beneficiary is gets the money. If you outlive the term, 
the policy ends and no one gets anything, but you don't pay the premium anymore. Or whole life insurance, which goes till you die and somebody gets it, but you pay for a long time. There are financial planners that have contracts with life insurance companies to put the financial planning client into those life insurance policies as a step, and then the financial planner gets compensated for that. There's nothing technically wrong or just, you know, it's not unethical or anything of that nature, but it changes the dynamic, especially if your advisor is not letting you know that's how they're compensated. It's one thing to say, if you go to this policy, this is what I'm going to make. There are other policies out there that I won't make money on. We can look at those too, right? But, you know, so that's what we're about to talk about next. But Simon doesn't get any benefit from where, if you want to buy all Apple stock, buy Apple stock, right? It doesn't matter from a financial perspective. Did I get that right, Simon? Yeah, essentially, yes. In fact, it's a legal obligation. My recommendations have to be in what I believe to be my client's best interests at all times. So uh, if there's investment A versus investment B, my only criteria for recommending A over B or B over A is that I believe it's in the client's best interests. Among the other 90% of financial advisors, anyone who works for a bank or a broker or a credit union or anything like that, uh, those people are paid to promote as much of product A as possible. They're not going to even talk to you about product B because it doesn't make any sense, no financial sense to them. And the other very important thing, distinction here, is that those financial advisors who are paid transactionally like that, they can't make money, unless they're lawyers, they can't make money out of a three-hour conversation with a client about why they need to change their will because there's no transaction there. So they're not going to do it. They have no incentive to talk about debt management to clients because they can't monetize that. In most cases, they can't even monetize college planning. So they are going to talk about the things that generate them income, whereas I can bill for a three-hour conversation about why you need to change all your estate planning. I can talk to people about life insurance if they need it. See, I don't mean to take money out of your pocket, Simon, but the main reason to redo your will is because your ex is probably your beneficiary and you don't want them to get the money. <laughs> there, got it done in 30 seconds. There is that version. All right, just try to save a little money and move us along here. <laughs> but there's the new guy down the street who you got your eye on as well. But it's essentially, they can talk about things that they can monetize, whereas I can talk about student loan debt, what happens to that? Because that is actually, if they're on an income-based repayment plan, they're suddenly not married. That changes everything when it comes to student loan debt. So a financial advisor is not going to talk, the other kind of financial advisor is not going to talk about that. And that's, that's important. So when I talk about vultures, people who are potentially at their lowest ebb, uh, emotionally affected, suddenly with a million dollars sitting in the bank account, they have no idea what they want to do with, need to change all their documents are red meat to these kind of people. Why is that split so 
so different. 90% of the market is compensated as effectively, and I don't know if this is derogatory, but effectively as sales agents to the funds and the, the financial products. And only 10% act in, in this... in Fiduciary manner. Yeah, fiduciary manner, right. Yeah, because the, the system was set up. I mean, that 10% number is higher than it was 20 years ago. Uh, the whole system was set up on a commission-based um, plan. And the, the way to look for to determine it is, again, find out how someone's compensated. If they have a Series 7, you can look these up online. If they have a Series 7, the Series 7 is not a competence exam. Series 7 qualifies you to take commissions. Interesting. If they have a CFP designation, that is a extremely difficult exam, and that imposes fiduciary obligations upon the holder of the designation. If they work for a registered investment advisor, as my firm is, that imposes a fiduciary obligation on the advisor you're dealing with. If they work for a bank, if they work for a credit union, if they work for a broker, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, etc., they are compensated on commission transactionally. That's the way it is. Of course. Sure. One thing I was thinking, Simon, is we keep having these hypotheticals with people having 400 grand in the bank, 500 grand in the bank. And a lot of financial planners won't work with people unless they have a certain amount of liquid assets that they can invest because that's how financial planners then can make money off of amount under management. If it's a 1% fee, that's how they get paid. But with you, you could be dealing with someone that doesn't have a lot of money to invest, but needs to still learn how to handle their finances. And for you, that doesn't change your equation or, or what you do. Is that a fair statement too? That is absolutely fair and very, very important to understand because if someone's willing to pay my fee, I don't care how much they've got in the bank. I, I, I can manage their assets if they want me to. I don't impose that. Sometimes it's just easier, uh, particularly with younger people, to say, look, I'll, I'll manage the assets for you. Uh, I'll set up this IRA uh, so you don't have to go to do it yourself. But if they want me to manage the assets, I will. If not, I mean, I have clients who I'm managing $5,000 for, literally. Um, the system I've got, the platform I've got, doesn't uh, is so scalable. It doesn't matter whether it's 5000 or $5 million, frankly. Okay, Pete, I'm in for my five grand. You can put your five mil with them. <laughs> five mil. <laughs> I got 50 <laughs> bucks ready for you right now. That's <laughs> well, I'm wondering where all the podcast checks are going, Yeah, Pete. where are you those know? sweet, sweet podcast money, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. What, Just checking. All right, all right. So so tell us then, uh, Simon, as we as we lean into our, our home stretch here, what are what are some uh, um, what are some red flags that people need to be worried about? We've already talked about sort of the fiduciary versus the commission based. Um, what are the things when you're in that emotional low that you want to make sure you you hit up eight o'clock Monday morning, day one? Make sure you resolve this first so you can sleep well that night. To an extent, uh, I think you need to not call me right away or a vulture. I think there is obviously. There is obviously some time required for decompressing. Some the time to be spent between talking to the likes of Seth and talking to the likes of me. But once you've had that, the Seth Simon gap. That's what we're going to define. Yeah, that the Seth it's Simon a gap. institutional People take gap. Take a long time to decompress yes. from talking to me. That's man. the truth. That's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not too long. 
Um, I mean, I think I think the real estate situation needs to be addressed, obviously, um, okay. reasonably quickly, just on a practical logistical level. Everything plays into that: the kids' schooling, uh, whatever, um, whatever came out of the uh, divorce decree. This is Maslow, right? It's health, safety, shelter, right? You want to have that one locked down first. Bingo. All right. Then I think, and this is a little more perhaps psychological, if there is $500,000 sitting in a checking account, I think that needs to be to be addressed, at least in part, just because I think that is something that um, somebody will feel a very good sense of accomplishment for if they can get that money. I constantly hear this. I want my money working for me. Um, you know, this is obviously being generated by nine years of a bull market or it's 11 now. I've been saying nine years for, for years. Now it's 11. Um, but uh, I think... I it's think, not like you know, Simon's a number guy. Don't worry Yeah, no, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to change my spiel. Right. Um, but there's, there's clearly uh, a sense of uh, a sense of accomplishment when, when there is that feeling of money. And also what it tends to do, once you get it out of the checking account, it becomes that tiny bit harder to spend. Right, even if there's a, a small step between the checking account feels so fragile to me. It feels like it's just begging to be spent when it's in the it's checking screaming account. Screaming at you, spend, oh, spend it's spend screaming it. Exactly. at me. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Not nearly as much as dollar bills in your pocket at a strip bar, though, Pete. That's true. No, that's true. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't know, but I assume from movies oh, and watching your yeah, life. Right, right. I wouldn't bills. know. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long time since you were at one. Yeah, <laughs> inflation. Inflation impacts everybody. So. Yeah. Yes. I don't think whipping out a $1 bill gets you very much these days. Uh, not that I've been for yeah. a very long time. Are we back to the Wolf of Wall Street? Then? Yes, I think um, we just turned on the Wolf uh, faucet. That's did. good. But, but let me just ask you this. Yeah. If you could just like take us, we've talked about people who are like just started the process. What does it feel like from your perception? How do they feel a year out after they've met with you? Like, What's different about them a year post-divorce when they've learned these skills and maybe they have a little bit of money working for them or your client that has five grand that you're managing for them, but hey, that's five grand more than they had before and there's no judgment here. Like every dollar is important. Can you tell us what those clients look like, feel like, sound like different? if at all, than they were coming out of the divorce. It's wonderful. It, it really, really is. If you're going to put a year time frame on it, you know, in the course of that time, they've sorted out their, their real estate. They've maybe got a plan in their own mind about what the next for real estate is. Uh, as I mentioned before, their money is working for them. It's in places where it should be. It's not in a place maybe where their ex-spouse used to put it and not bother telling them about, or uh, they feel very much in control because I'm not going to just ask them to give me the keys to their investments and go and do it. I'm we're, we're, we're learning along the way because, as I said, the idea is that I step back at some point. I want them to know what they're invested in, how to put money in, how to take money out. And there's a great sense of accomplishment from these people, again, especially the, quote, junior partner in the previous relationship financially speaking. The will is usually redone. The life insurance, if needed, is in place. The kids are happier. I'm really glad you asked me that question, actually. It's really, really gratifying to uh, to see these people a year later. It's wonderful. Well, I'll, I'll confess to you, I asked it because I went through it. I mean, my son's 17. It was 15 years ago. But when I got divorced, 
and I set up the new will for my son and got a life insurance policy that I thought was beneficial for him, I felt better sleeping that night Yeah. after I had that stuff done, knowing that God forbid, um, if, uh, if something happened to me, at least he was taken care of financially. And, and I'll share this. And I know we're coming up on Thanksgiving, Pete, and I'm actually spending Thanksgiving with my son and my former spouse and her family. So I'm hoping they don't listen to this podcast because I'm going to get in trouble here. <laughs> I, I called my former spouse when I was setting, changing some life insurance around. And I said, hey, can I have your daughter's social security number? It used to be my stepdaughter because if something happens to me, I want to leave some money for her and my life insurance. And she goes, yeah, but you don't need to do that. I said, I would really like to do it though, if that's okay with you. And she goes, of course, it's very generous. You don't need to. And I said, listen, for the amount of money I'm getting for Kai to add some on for her, it's like I have to like pass on one beer. Like, you know, another $10 a month gets me plenty to leave for her, right? Yeah. And and I said to my former spouse, I said, please don't ask me how much life insurance I have for the kids because I'll tell you and I'm afraid that I'm going to get whacked by you. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Pete, she paused and said, Oh, the time for that has passed. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that funny how quickly we can go from sleeping soundly at night to having too much insurance and realizing you're not sleeping at all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's why I shared it though, or yeah. asked the question, Simon, because it, it makes a difference and it's not easy. Nothing is easy to get over the fear factor but it's not as hard as you make it out. The worrying about it is worse than the doing it. So I would encourage people to, to reach out to guys like Simon and, and get it get it done. Simon, what's your, uh, what's, do you have a, a jurisdiction to check? Or do, do people just have to be in New York to work with you? Or uh... I can work with people in, actually in any state other than uh, Texas or Louisiana who have their own little rules for their own financial advisors. Um, I can work with as many people in New York as necessary. That's why I'm registered. But also, um, there's a de minimis amount of people you can have in every other state. So I can work with most people. Okay. Well, because, you know, Seth is in, in Florida and I am in Oregon. And so, you know, we're, as we're talking about it, if we put your link in the show notes, we want to make sure we can send people to you legitimately. And, and we should uh, very much do that. So check out uh, the links in the show notes for Simon. You want to uh, uh, talk a little bit about your firm? Uh, where are they going to find you? I've uh, actually just redone the website, which is angliaadvisors.com, A-N-G-L-I-A, advisors.com. Uh, pretty much everything is up there. Prices are there. Everything's transparent. There's a bit of a background on me, uh, the different services I offer. I can uh, deal with people for as short a period of two hours, or we can go into a uh, you know a deeper engagement. Um, I did just start putting a few things out on Instagram, uh, <laughs> Anglia Advisors. Uh, I don't know how that's going. Uh, I do I do do a weekly market report, um, which anyone can sign up for on the website. So, do you do that as like a TikTok dance video, or no, have you not gotten no, into that? I, no, not yet. You're like the third person who asked me that in the last two weeks. Um, no, I don't do uh, <laughs> what's it called, FinTop. 
is uh, fin talk. That's a it's thing. Oh. Yeah. Oh, Let I'm me so... tell you, I subscribe to that every night. Pete puts me right to sleep. Fascinating. I think my <laughs> life is worse actually knowing that that exists. I'm sorry about that for everybody in the field. Uh-uh. But Simon, I got to know, you, you grew up in the UK, I'm assuming? Yep. yep. And, and, and where in the UK? Uh, I was born and went to school in London, north part okay. of London. And I'm dying. Did you play rugby? Did you play cricket? What, what did any of those things growing up? Keep trying. Do <laughs> football. One, there's football. only one sport. Football. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I didn't do the rugby cricket thing. There's uh, only okay. one My sport. My parents didn't football. have money for that. Seth's right, in exactly. Tampa and he rides a flamingo to work. So as long as we're going, <laughs> yeah. we're leaning in. And I, I actually ride a horse into the woods wearing my flannel here in Oregon. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> I, I was first in my age group in the flamingo races. Just were you weekend. really? Yeah, how about that? It's you know, amazing. I mean, the flamingo was a lot younger than me, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Simon Brady, you are uh, you're a champ. Thanks for joining us on the show this week. We sure appreciate you uh, sharing your wisdom uh, with the Toaster audience. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, guys. And thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening. On behalf of, of Simon Brady, and you know him, you love him, America's favorite divorce attorney, Seth Nelson. I'm Pete Wright, and we'll catch you next time right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with Nelson Coster Family Law and Mediation with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, how to split a toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of Nelson Coster. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.